Colossians 1.13. Turn there with me. We have an ancient hymn in Paul's letter to the church in Colos, a not sure if you pronounce it that way, but somewhat similar. So one of the earliest hymns of, of the Christian church that we're about to read right now about Jesus. Colossians 1, verse 13. For he has rescued us, this is Jesus, from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you. This includes you, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Open our eyes to receive revelation of his beauty and of his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We're in part two of our series on the beauty of Jesus. Last week, if you were not here, we talked about um, the humanity of Christ. Um, and, and, and we discussed when it comes to the humanity of Jesus, um, his approachability, his relatability. He's, he's the one who worked with his hands. He's the one who sweat. He's the one who bled. He's the one who spoke. He's the one that touched. He's, he's a human being, but he's also God. That we read one of an, uh, an early church creed last week, which has come to be known as the Nicene Creed. It began to be formulated in 325 AD and then was completed and, 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 and extended in 381. And many churches read from this creed today, and we're not going to read from it, but, but it's, when it's talking about Jesus, it calls him the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. This man that we call Jesus is God. Today's message is not to prove this reality, um, the same with last week, but it's rather to explain it, to get us to start contemplating this, to start meditating on, on what this means um, for Jesus and for us in our relationship to him. Because the fact that this Jewish man, 
Jesus of Nazareth, born in a little stable, born of Mary, was and is and forever will be God. This fact changes the way we relate to this man and what his death, burial, and resurrection means for us. So, here's a theological term for you. The hypostatic union. Can we say that? Hypostatic union. Very good. Hypostatic, um, or, or this word hypostasis, um, is, is from a Greek word that, that we've come to render as person. Um, now, it doesn't, there are a little more nuances to what that word originally means, um, it, uh, but, but, but that's, that's the best words we can come up with in English um, as of now. But it referred, the hypostatic union refers to this personal union in Christ of one person, one being, Jesus, with two natures, humanity, divinity, hypostatically unified in one person, fully God, fully man, one person. He is the God-man, the Theanthropos. <laughs> he did not experience God. He was God. He did not become God. He was God from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through him all things were made, and for him. All things were made. Jesus, he, he's a Jewish man. Jesus is and now forever will be a Jew. He was born in a Jewish community from a Jewish mother. He was circumcised under the Jewish law on the eighth day. He grew up going to synagogue. Um, he forever took on flesh. But he was God. So I just want to muse over this for a little bit. Um, and we did a little bit of this last week in terms of his humanity and divinity. But So we have this, this, this Jewish man born of Mary... He's a human being that though he was born as a baby, he was eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. The one that Mary and Joseph taught to speak when he was a baby. They taught him to say, Abba, 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 Ima, Ima, Mama, Papa, Papa, Mama. They were teaching him to speak these words. The one that they taught, this little Jewish boy, is the one who spoke existence. The one who spoke creation into being. The one who upholds all things by the power of his word. Ah. <sighs> This little boy, this little four-year-old boy that Mary rocked to sleep tonight, at night, that when he was crying, she came and comforted him. She put him down on his bed and he slept at night and they watched over him sleeping. This little Jewish boy is the God who never slumbers or sleeps, who keeps watch over his people day and night. Wow. 
the young Jewish boy who came up on his bar mitzvah to read his Torah portion. He opened up a scroll from what we call the Old Testament. He would chant from a passage of the Torah that this little boy that would read these words is himself the living word of God. The boy Joseph taught to build tables and chairs is the one who built the universe. The one who, the one, the one, the one who formed the spirit of man within him. The one who, the one who fashioned the galaxies. The one who formed the earth out of this whole, uh, uh, this darkness and this void of Genesis 1. The spirit of God hovered over and formed into this beautiful garden for mankind to dwell in forever. This little Jewish boy... This man that was baptized by John in water is the one who baptizes with Holy Spirit and fire. This man who asked the Samaritan woman for a drink at the well is the God who is the source of the wells of living water. This man who multiplied the loaves of bread is himself the living bread of heaven. The man who is tempted by Satan in the wilderness is the God who will cast this serpent into the lake of fire at the end of the age. The man who suffered and tasted death, even death on a cross, is the author of life. And by his death, he rendered powerless him who had power over over death. He defeated death and death has been swallowed up in victory. With the power of an indestructible life, he took the keys of death and hell and he rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 7, 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I love this quote from Alan Hood in his book and his class on the excellencies of Christ. That through the weakness of the human nature, Jesus could taste death. And through the strength of his divine nature, he could overcome it. Jesus, this Jewish man that suffered and that died, is the God, the author of life that has swallowed up death forever, that has broken the power of death over your lives forever. His human words divinely imparted spirit and life. His human eyes divinely saw into the hearts and the thoughts of men and women. That his human touch divinely healed the sick and the lame. And that his human blood would divinely wash and cleanse every soul from the stain of sin. And we have been reconciled to God through the blood of his cross. And by his divine spirit, he would forever unite humanity to the spirit of God the Father, that we may be one with him. We love this man. So how do we relate to Jesus? If Jesus is all these things that we've said, which again, we're not proving today. We're taking for granted because we've spent 2,000 years working that out already. (laughs) But what does this mean? How do we relate to Jesus if he is God? 
One word describes it quite easily. If Jesus is God, then Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. Jesus is in charge of the universe, of the world, of your life, both now and forever. Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. The word Lord in Greek was kyrios. Say kyrios. Kyrios, very good, means Lord. It's used 6,814 times in a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's used for God. That when we see the word Lord in the the Old Testament, that when it was translated into Greek, that they use that word, kyrios, to refer to God. Paul uses this word over 250 times in the New Testament to refer to Jesus. Jesus is the kyrios of the Old Testament. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Great I am, he's Yahweh, the La, 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 he is Yahweh. <laughs> Yahweh. <laughs> I know that word. <laughs> I love that song. So, if he is Lord, then we are called to relate to him and to submit to him as such. If he is Lord, if he is God, then three things or four things. We'll go with four. Four things. Number one. He has authority to determine how we should live. If he is Lord, he has authority to interpret scripture and to tell us how to live our lives. This is what's happening on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had just cast demons out of people. He just set them free from demonic oppression. He's healed them of sicknesses. And then he gets up on a mountain and he starts teaching them. But you know, what's interesting, if you, if you notice that he's, he refers a lot to the Old Testament, he refers to the law, he refers to the Torah. Um, and, and what he's doing is he's explaining the Torah. And, he's, he's in, and what a rabbi in his day would do, they would take the written Torah, they would take the oral traditions that were passed down from generation to, the gener- to generation, and the rabbis would interpret it to various communities. So that when they came across Deuteronomy and they found things like do not murder, the rabbis would interpret what that means literally literally, and what that means and communicates in regards to the heart of the law. And that's why Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall do no murder. But I tell you that anyone who calls his brother a fool shall be tried as a murderer. That he who says, raka, idiot, fool, will be in danger of hellfire. He's explaining the word of God. And so when people call Jesus rabbi, which means teacher, they're not just saying, oh, he's a good teacher. We, We like to sit under his teaching. They're saying to him, Jesus, you have authority to interpret scripture and to tell me how to live my life. That's what rabbi meant. Jesus was not shy about this authority that he had. In fact, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
Number two, he has authority to judge, both now and in eternity. John chapter five, Jesus says this, the father judges no one. We like that. I like that. Let's keep reading though. (laughs) He has committed all judgment to the son. Jesus is judge. Jesus judges people. He is a righteous judge. And friends, when I say this word judge, judge simply means someone who renders decisions, someone who renders verdict. We, we think of the word judge in, is, as condemnation, and it definitely includes that. Um, Jesus has the right to condemn people. Um, Jesus has the right to condemn people to hell. You know, Jesus actually taught on hell more than anyone in, in, the, in the New Testament, in the entire Bible. It's not a popular topic in some places. Some people go a little overboard. Um, but, um, but we don't need to be shy about this. Um, Jesus said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, but only those who actually do the will of my Father. Matthew 7. And he said even that many would come to him in that day that call him Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not hear you teach in our streets? Did we not hear the word of God come from your mouth? And he will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. And just as a side note, there's something really key when it comes to us wanting to be intimate with God, wanting to be known by God, to know God, that is contingent upon our submission to his will. If we will submit to his will, if we submit to his lordship, that opens up a whole new realm of intimacy that we could not have accessed before. Psalm 25, I believe it is, that intimacy with the Lord is for those who fear him, for those who obey him, for those who worship him, for those who hear his words and then do them. Does Jesus send people to hell? Yes, he does. And at the resurrection... The nations will be gathered before the son of man and he will sit on his throne of glory and he will divide the sheep and the goats. And his sheep on his right hand, he will say, come into everlasting life. And to the goats on his left, he will say, be taken and depart into everlasting fire and punishment that was reserved, that was created for Satan and his angels. Jesus sends people to hell. Because he's judge. Number three, not only does he have the authority to judge in a negative sense, to condemn, he has the authority to forgive, to acquit, to render guiltless the guilty. Luke 5 15 to 26, that a lame man 
comes before Jesus and Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. And he's actually accused of blasphemy because he is, because only God can forgive sins. But Jesus said, in order that you may know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins, he heals the lame man, get up and walk. Drives people crazy. <laughs> they actually get more upset when he forgives people than when he says things like, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter my kingdom. Some people probably heard that part and said, yeah. Just because you call him Lord doesn't mean you'll enter his kingdom. But then he goes off and he says, I forgive this man. They're like, whoa, wait a minute, Jesus. I know what this guy's done. I know what that adulterous woman did. But he looked her in the eyes and he said, I do not condemn you either. Go and sin no more. That he was so merciful and so kind that, that, that a sinful woman, that, that, that the prostitutes would come to his feet. They would, they would weep over him. They would wash his feet with their tears. The woman that poured this oil, this alabaster jar over his head. And people are rebuking these, these sinful women, these sinful men that came up to him. And Jesus said, he, he said, I did not come to call the righteous to repentance. I came to call the sinners to repentance. I came for the sick. I came to heal the brokenhearted. And it drew these crowds and these crowds to Jesus because why? He has authority to forgive sins. He delights in mercy. This is his heart. He has no desire and no pleasure in the punishment and the death of the wicked, but he wills that all would come to repentance, would turn from their wicked ways and be healed and be restored. The new covenant says this, I will be merciful to their wicked deeds and their sins I will remember no more. That when we come to God, that we confess our sins to him, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all unrighteousness and that he not only removes from, from our soul the stain of sin, but he removes from his own memory consciousness of that sin. And when we come to Jesus, when we come before the Father with the same sin that we've committed over and over and we just feel like he hasn't forgiven us, we're confessing that same exact sin that we committed five years ago, 10 years ago, last year, yesterday, this morning, and we keep reminding him of these sins, he is saying, I do not remember. He blots it out of his memory. This is a judge that I can trust my life to. Number four, he is worthy of worship. If Jesus is God, if Jesus is Lord, he is worthy of our worship. Philippians 2, 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. That Jesus, when he rebuked the storm, people were afraid because they saw divine power and life coming out of Jesus. That he walked on water, they were afraid. When people began to see that this Jewish man born of Nazareth was actually God, the fear of the Lord gripped their hearts. It produced worship. They would fall on their face. And typically Jesus would say, do not be afraid. He was, he was now I want to I distinguish a little bit here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord does not ever change. We, we constantly walk in the fear of the Lord. Um, it, is, it is the foundation of wisdom, and it is what actually continues us in, in wisdom. Um, however, God's heart is not for us to, um, well, let me just put it this way. Um, as I've encountered the Lord and seen his glory, whether in a vision, in a trance, in some kind of encounter, it leaves me trembling. It leaves me with this sense of even um, of, of unworthiness, to be honest. Um, and, 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 and Peter kind of experienced the same thing as he's witnessing these miracles. He's like, I'm a sinful man. And, and this, but, but at the same time, there's this drawing of his gaze. There's this drawing of his kindness that pulls me towards him. And, 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 and I'm talking to the Lord about this. I'm like, God, what, what is this? Is this like some, uh, issues that I need to deal with, with, uh, with, with, lies about who you are and your nature? Should I be trembling? Should I be shaking before you? And, and, and you know, I, I felt like the Lord's response was, Matthew, the more you receive revelation of my glory, the more um, it will cause you to tremble. Um, John, the beloved who laid his head on the chest of Jesus, Mr. Apostle of Love, that, that spoke about the love of God throughout his letters, throughout his gospel. In the book of Revelation, he sees the resurrected, glorified Jesus and he falls over as a dead man. <laughs> Friends, that the, 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 the glory of God overwhelms us and it, it does something to our senses and, it, and, it, and, and that uh, crud, this is God, <laughs> kind of hits us. Um, and the, the good thing is that, that the hand of God strengthens us and, and, and strengthens our body, strengthens our mind, strengthens our hearts to stand in his presence. But friends, that there's, there is an awe, there is a beauty, there is a fascination with Jesus that comes. When we begin to see that he's more than just a Jewish boy, that this man is God. And this worship movement that is spreading across the earth, it will be birthed out of revelation of the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. I will cause righteousness and praise to spring up from the nations. And it's when we gaze, it's when we look upon the face of Jesus and the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ that produces this worship for Jesus, his, his worthiness of our lives, of our devotion. Revelation 5, John is taken up into heaven and sees the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And he sees the 24 elders, the four seraphim, the millions upon millions of angels crying out, worthy is the Lamb who is slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And they fell down and they worshiped the lamb. They worshiped 
a man because he's God. Hmm. Worship team, you're welcome to come on up. Jesus is, he's the son of the living God. He is eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He's truly God. He's truly man. And friends, what's, what does this do for us? Yes, it, it, it changes how we relate to him, but what, is it, what does it do in regards to his death, his burial, his resurrection? Well, this eternal son who is with the Father from eternity, um, he took on flesh. He took on humanity in order that we human beings may take on his divinity. God took on the nature of humanity that humanity might take on the nature of God. John said, I baptize you with water, but there is one more powerful than I who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, he, he, he pulled into the heart of the Father, he poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost, and he continues to pour out his spirit today. What he's doing is he's immersing us with the spirit of God. He's immersing us with God himself, that the divine nature of God himself is coming and consuming our human flesh, our human mind, and our, we are united with him in one spirit. And what was Matthew the man becomes Matthew the man filled with God. That the broken, the weak, the hurting Matthew became the temple and the house of the spirit of the living God. And so that when Matthew's hand touches somebody that is sick, that the divine life and power flows through my hands. That when Matthew looks at someone in the eyes and says, Jesus does not condemn you. That his life and his spirit breaks off that spirit of condemnation. And that when Matthew stands in the presence of God the Father, that he has been baptized with Christ, he has been clothed with Christ, that when the Father looks at me, he sees the beauty and the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. And that because of Jesus, the Father himself hears my prayers. And I can come boldly into his presence.